Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal with your host, Conan Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rock about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or fool. I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's the real world. I choose to go my life to. That's okay. It means something. It means something. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed it is. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact. We are all up in your face. It is time for the one, the only Protonic Reversal, and we welcome you to it. Tonight is going to be an awesome show. They're all awesome shows. Mr. Mike Moraski, Stillbull Bathtub, Milk Cult, etc., etc., Awesome dude, one of my favorite guitar players of all time. And we're going to talk some deep geek about some awesome old noise rock and other things as well. Uh, Okay, so housekeeping. Thanks, everybody, for the feedback on the recent shows, especially the Jerry Casale episode, which has definitely gotten a lot of heat outside of the normal parties. Of course, we're still doing these for stay-at-home editions. These are all... Shows that are designed to keep you at home, <laughs> which is where you should be during this pandemic. If you are l- wondering where a certain episode of the show is, because it's not on the free feed yet, we're going to get there. Uh, if you do want them immediately, patreon.com slash Reversal. A dollar a month gets you all the shows immediately in there. Unedited. Not that there's ever really that much editing. Very raw form. So make of that what you will. If it's something that's that important to you, buck a month will get you there. I haven't even worked out what it is per episode at this point. It's probably like 10 cents per episode or something in this way with the amount that we're cranking out. Anyway, that's that. Thanks to everyone who's sharing the show along, letting people know that uh, this is a thing that's worth paying attention to. There's been a great groundswell of support. And uh, just want to say thank you. That, that's really nice. It's nice. Okay, so we're going to play a song. We'll come back with Mr. Mike Moraski. I am stoked. Let's listen to... Well, we're going to listen to the hit. <laughs> Train to Miami.
Ah, you were hired by a bitch to find scum. No, that's another song. Uh, that was, of course, Train to Miami by Steel Pole Bathtub. And <clears throat> right now we are talking to the one and only Mr. Mike Moraski. Hey, Mike, Conan. welcome to the show, dude. Hey, thanks. It's been a bit. Glad to be here. <laughs> it's been a bit. <laughs> it has been a while. It feels like yesterday, kind of, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 kind of funny how time works that way. I, I so I started off with with Steel Pole Bathtub, of course. I characterize it as the hit as much as uh, as I suppose you guys would, would have hits. And the reason why I mention that is because because of course that's one of the songs that's in it's in the video game. It's in it's in Left for Dead, and it's it's something that uh, I, I guess when when you guys were making Train to Miami, did you ever have any idea that it would? kind of resonate with people beyond just, you know, like being another crazy song on uh, one of your uh, better records? No, no. I mean, of course not. Do you, like, when you write stuff, do you ever sort of have that vision, you know? Like, I I, would, I just listened to uh, your interview with um, Dale. Oh, yeah. And what do, you, what do you say? Like, we're accidentalists? That was such a... <laughs> yeah, that was a, that's very, what, what very a great true, quote. Yeah. Right, you know? right, right, right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, afterwards, you know, once you kind of get done and you start putting the record together, I guess you start to see that it's gone. I mean, obviously, once it was out on the radio and whatnot, like there was sort of this there was this brief window in time where, um, you know, extra width was big. Right. It yeah. had just come out and uh, rid of me was out and we were right in that mix. And we I so felt like we were adults for a just a split second, you right. know? <laughs> like it nuance was, was allowed for once? <laughs> yeah, well, it was, well, no, it was like our record was being played along these rec- alongside these records that yeah. we just were like, you know, infatuated with. And, uh, and so, you know, for a split second there, it kind of felt like we were playing with the big boys, you know? Um, they, they allowed so. the weirdos in for, uh, <laughs> totally. for a few minutes. <laughs> Well, and that's something where it's they. It's almost like they hadn't figured out the new formula at that point. Like they were like, okay, well, let's just uh, let's roll with this. I guess we can still make money on this, boys. Don't worry about it. <laughs> right. I mean, because Nirvana was just like really hitting, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and so the clubs, like we went from what the three hundred capacity to five hundred to suddenly you were looking at a thousand. And, you know, and and so everything was ramping up, but nobody knew what it was that actually worked when really it was pretty easy to look and go, well, Nirvana, it's kind of like the Beatles of, of yeah. underground, you know? Like yeah, it yeah. Was, it's, there's not that much difference to it. It's, it's louder and more aggressive sounding, but like ultimately they're pop songs like played with punk rock passion. Right. You know, and, and so there's just this wave that all the rest of us detrius were sort of getting swept along with and but i mean to be totally fair like <laughs> wow you know I, there, there was like i think there were some pretty um discerning listeners at the time and shit was you know was kind of opening up too you know yeah. like we would tour we tour we brought uh ethel meat plow with us on a tour and right. you know and that was like that it's definitely pushing some boundaries in some midwestern towns and you know people were people were down so um yeah ethel meeplow uh who i actually i actually did find out by them through you guys and I, and I, they were such a puzzling band like i just didn't understand in a very real way i didn't understand what they were all about at first which i think was awesome because i that's you know coming from that time period where 
that's an asset, not a liability. You know, like, oh, I can't wait to figure this out rather than, oh, I don't understand this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, I also listened to your, uh, your, you know, I, since this, I knew this was coming up. I, I walk my dog every day for an hour and a half sure. or something. So I, I listened to a bunch of your episodes and uh, I was you. listening to, oh yeah, it's really enjoyable stuff. Um, and I listened to the one with Steve McDonald and he was talking about, uh, you know, sort of that identification with music, you know, and, and, uh, and you guys also mentioned SST, which was really funny, but, um, you know, I was thinking of SST as being like this label that kind of were the first ones to branch, you know, it was like, right. Yeah. It was hardcore, but then it was like the Minutemen and Sonic Youth and Butthole Surfers and, you know, and fucking Dinosaur Jr., right? Like it was super all over the place. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure all those bands were on SST. Well, um, yeah, yeah. And it, it was hardcore as determined by like an ethos and mindset rather than like a strict set of musical guidelines and rules. Right, exactly. And so we were always sort of like uh, of that mindset. So bringing, you know, Ethel Meatplow with us made perfect sense to us, right? Even right. though they were weird kind of club fuck dance music thing from L.A. You right, know? right. Like, for sure. Um, and, you know, we definitely like to piss our audience off a little bit when possible, I think. Challenge um, them a little bit, maybe to go outside their comfort zone, perhaps. Challenge them, that, for sure. That's the nice yeah. way to put that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you know, so there was that weird era. I, you know, it's funny though. Like when I think about some of those, sh you know, we definitely danced all uh, like through all these different scenes. Mm -hmm. You know, we were always like just an in a scene enough to be kind of owned by the scene, but not enough to be really big in that scene. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like the Gilman Street thing. Uh, Pat from One Two Three Four a couple of years what was it probably probably forever ago now like time just is blurring into this a mass of <laughs> shit that just goes by right right <laughs> but it was, there was some anniversary show at gilman and he wrote to me and was like hey you guys gotta reform for this anniversary like we always thought of you as a gilman band and and we played a ton of shows at Gilman and have a lot of friends in that scene. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, it's like, yeah, but Op Ivy was the Gilman band or Green yeah. Day, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, those are the real successful, you know, or neurosis. Um, but, and I mean, I still do identify with it, but then, you know, anyway, so, so the thing is, is it's sort of like, you know, when you're, when we were touring, we'd play some you know, show with like verbal assault or whatever. Sure, and, yeah. you know, and everybody's like, oh yeah, these guys are punk. But then it's like, well, we don't quite play the straight, you know, two, four backbeat, you know, da, 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 yeah, you know, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. And, uh, there's also a song so, called Arizona garbage truck that literally sounds like an Arizona garbage truck. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> so I don't know how many shows like we'd show up at and everybody'd be like, oh, you guys are a grunge band. And then they go like, well, no, but you're, if you're a grunge band, you're kind of a shitty grunge band or like a punk scene would be like, oh yeah, you guys are a punk band. It's like, oh, not really a great punk band actually, you know? <laughs> Um, and even the noise scene, you know, it's just like, ah, oh, they're too rock or whatever. So, yeah, it's uh, almost like you guys were too freaky bizarre for anyone like into like the, like the poppy side of it. And then, you know, too heavy and weird for, uh, people that were more like conventional indie rockers. Wasn't exactly punk. Wasn't exactly metal. There wasn't enough flannel for the grungers, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it kind of seemed like of the Venn diagrams, there was like a very small, like overlap 
that was, uh, you know, like-minded folks such yeah. as yourself. And it, it, it always seemed to me, and again, maybe that's coming from my personal experience of being in the Bay Area at the, at the time and just everything being, you know, kind of like the, the montage shot in the movie where the kid comes from the, like the podunk town. Oh my God, what's, you know, what's this? What's that? <laughs> uh, but it seemed like there was common cause with bands like Melvin's that also were, you know, as it turns out, rather iconoclastic, but basically following their own thing and their own worldview and making their own world rather than easily sliding into something that already existed. Yeah, I, I mean, I would agree with that, you know, as in, in so much as like, you know, I can associate ourselves with the Melvins in any way, shape or form. But, um, you know, we definitely like it was always I thought it was really cool that given their I mean, see, now it's it's so hard not to not mess up the current, you know, the current blur of of reality with the past blur, you know, because it's. <laughs> right. It's like, well, the Melvins, like they influenced Nirvana and shouldn't they have been on, you know, uh, sub pop or whatever um, instead of, you know, boner records. And but, you know, back then it was like the Melvins were a small band. Right. We were everyone was a small. There just was no such thing as a big. I mean, to me, you know, I saw the Melvins. We lived in Seattle for a period there before moving down here and um, and before, you know, we became uh, label mates, but I saw them opening for, um, um, oh my God. Now I'll see uh, my old brain is, is totally <laughs> getting in the way. Rick Valentine always the- does goes, ah, ah. <laughs> and Rose too. They will, they both do the, the old people thing whenever you can't remember something. Come on, Michael Gerald and, um, Killdozer. Killdozer. Fuck. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, and it was just like and so I was like oh the Melvins are huge they opened for Killdozer but it was at this like club that held like 200 people and there were 75 people right there. right you know what I'm mean? yeah yeah and they were and they were big bands in your mind but when it comes time to you know if you think about like you know larger impact on, on the music world at large it, it wasn't it was like underground big and that's also something where just to digress a little bit the I think the kids today. A lot of them, you know, I'll, I'll, run, I'll run into bands that are younger bands that are like awesome as hell. But to them, like a band like Carp was just as big as like Smashing Pumpkins. And it'd be like, I can assure you that was not the case. <laughs> right. Exactly. I guarantee you that was not that was not that just not true. Yeah. You know, I forget. Sorry, I totally digress. I have no idea what we were talking well, I about. I mean, hey, you've heard you've heard this show. That's like it's half <laughs> <laughs> half the show is digressions. It'd be like three minutes and the that freaking shellac song if there wasn't any digressions. Right. Oh, well, you know, I guess, the, yeah, I, I, I usually can find my way back if I like give myself a second. Um, but I mean, but that scene I, and talking about like, you know, the, the, the boner records and like, you know, Kilowatt and, and, and that era of San Francisco uh, and you guys are sliding into that while at the same time being not necessarily of any specific musical genre, quote unquote, scene as a, I, you know, as you, well, I guess, would now buy it hot topic. And I think I, I guess the thing too, the, the iconoclastic thing, and you know, the I think the Melvins were definitely a little more cynical than we ever were, but we were very no. c- cynical. And, <laughs> and uh, I remember at one point, uh, you know, we both kind of had this anti-sub pop thing, and it wasn't so much like sub pop was great. Like I had friends on sub pop, like they had great bands, and they were smart yeah. about packaging and. And all that shit that I really actually can really appreciate. But 
um, you know, everywhere you went, everybody would be like, are you a sub-pop band? Are you, you know, are, right. have you heard, you know, Blood Circus or what, I guess, you know, whatever the band was that, you know, that was hot from sub-pop at the moment. And um, so I remember at one point going up and cat playing. Cat butt, maybe? No. <laughs> cat, cat butt. Well, I love cat butt, though. It, like, it's been about 30 episodes since I did a cat butt reference, so I had to throw it in. <laughs> oh, man. I just, you know, those guys are rad and um you know, and they were real good friends with L7, who we were, we were friendly with, and yeah. um, they're just—I don't know—they were fun. They were a fun, kooky band, and so they totally jived with our mentality. But uh, you know, so I remember going up and playing at the Vogue, I think, and I think it was one of the shows with Ah no, I can't remember. Anyway, it was a Vogue show, and we were talking to you know Jonathan Poneman, like he was going to do a seven-inch for you know, steel pull bathtub and sub pop. And it was going to be our big breakthrough or whatever. And of course we get on stage and start making fun of kiss and how all the bands in Seattle are into kiss and, you know, and just, <laughs> just, just how to win friends and influence people. The steel pull <laughs> totally. bathtub story. <laughs> just like completely, you know, just completely fucking it up, you know? And, but that was just how we were, you know, we just were like, well, okay, I guess, this isn't our scene, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's some, that's also something where I, I think that that is from the from the outside. It kind of seemed like that was the ethos. Like when I first heard Stupid Bathtub, it was on like a mixtape that a friend of mine had made that had the the vast majority of Tulip and Miracle and like part of Butterfly Love, but wasn't really clearly labeled what was what. <laughs> so I just listened to the whole thing as if it was one gigantic composition. And it was something where when I first started listening to it, I was like, wow, this is bizarre. Like, this is like kind of like it's cool, but it's all over the place. And of course, the thing that jumped out the most was, was the samples. And, you know, we'll get into that in depth right. later. We don't have to talk about it right this second. But it, it even though there are bands that, you know, some of your guitar stuff, of course, I was like, oh, this is like a more like, you know, unhinged Dead Kennedys, like East Bay Rig, like guitar. This is like really interesting. And especially all the surfy stuff. Right. And then I mean, and then also thinking that, you know, they, these other bands like Sonic Youth and Melvin's and stuff that I already loved. It's like, oh, it's like this. But it's like like a crazed, like psychedelic film noir version of it. Like I just had a hard time, like figuring it out. And I enjoyed the ride of trying to figure it out. And then as I kind of got there. I realized like, oh no, they're purposefully doing this. Like they can write something more conventional and be more conventional, but they're this is like what their compass is. They're trying to carve out this, you know, ra rather than like just take the freeway, they're building a road to wherever it is that they're going. Right. Yeah. And and like it's sort of that laying the track as the train goes concept. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Like in the cartoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except for there's three of us, you know? Yeah. But, and just all three of us were complete and we still are complete art nuts, you know, just, you know, off in our own bizarre universes. And, um, and, you know, we happen to still are good friends. And I think on similar pages, just in that regard, even though as individuals, we're extremely different and our, our, uh, exact specific interests are super different, right. but, but, that aspect of it, the deep interest and love of art and of trying to do something deep and different and interesting and and not too precious, hopefully, you know, um, 
is is all you know, is, that's that's definitely uniform throughout it. Well, but. there's a there's a lot of things I would use to describe Stillwell Bathtub, and Precious is definitely not one of them. It's not a, <laughs> not precious music in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but you know, it, in a good way, like it's something where. Like and, and and again, you we kind of started off this this line of thought with introducing the mindset and events happening around that time. That there was that kind of brief moment where just genuine freaks, nerds, and weirdos could get a hearing. And it wasn't necessarily like, oh, you're going to be the next Nirvana, but of course, that's what the executives wanted. But it was this confluence of things where weird stuff could get out of its subgenre of a subgenre click of a click <laughs> that it otherwise would have been in before. Right. Yeah. And it was, it was weird to be part of that and to experience it. And I mean, admittedly there were shows, you know, that we played where, but you know, like thousand people in Atlanta and they're all fucking there and they love us. Like there's, and they know our music and they know the songs and it's like, wow, how, well, how did this happen? This is really cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, this must be like what it feels like to be in a successful band. Neat. <laughs> right. You know, outside of San Francisco. <laughs> right. 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 right, right. Like, yeah. You know, cause you, you hang out in the, the city, or at least in the old days, you, you just play enough scenes and get them all coming to your show and you've got a thousand people. Right. But, um, but at the same time, then we like probably around that same time played da- I remember playing Dallas and it was before uh, Emo had one of his clubs. What was it? The, the uh, forget it was different, like the Orbit Room, I think it was called. Um, but it was some other club in the Pearl. Is it Pearl District? Right. The that funny neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Hip, I think so, hipster yeah. neighborhood in Dallas. And uh, and, you know. I remember playing and there's like straight up Texas style, um, you know, w- women super dolled up with mini skirts dancing by the side of the stage. Like, right. was like, wait, do you actually hear what we're doing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is this is not what I would think of when you said the word dance music. <laughs> or did some hype machine get you here and just like you believe this is where you're supposed to be? And, you know, eventually you learn that that's actually true. Like for a lot of how that shit works is someone tells people where they should be and that's where they go and they're perfectly happy consuming it, you know, and which is okay too, but it's harder to imagine often with really harsh, weird music, you know? Yeah. And reconciling that with the fact that you're making this artistic statement, like you're doing art and then it's like, Oh yeah, these people are just here to, you know, have a Saturday. Yeah. The civilians. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the gen pop. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, I still struggle with that a little bit. Like, it, it, I, you know, Steve, it hasn't changed that much, really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> McDonald's, <laughs> he, he said he's kind of struggling with that personal identity thing. And I, you know, I have a broad, you know, super broad um, space that I work in. And I'm really interested in all forms of art and music at this point, except, you know, the day that I actually appreciate the Grateful Dead, you should come put a fucking <laughs> bullet in my head. You know, that I that's just, the invasion of the body snatchers moment. That's how you know. That <laughs> yeah. He's a double. Something about that music just makes me feel bad acid in my body. And that's not a good, <laughs> that's not a good musical form in my opinion, but not, not a desirous effect nor a desirous sound. No. 
I mean, but I've, yeah, I know a ton of people who love them, so I'm probably wrong in some some aspect. But, I mean, uh, hey, man, I worked at a record store in Berkeley, so you can imagine, you know, just having like all the oh. the, the uh, all the yeah. central castings, uh, hippie, you know, post hippie hippies wandering up and wanting to talk about the dead. It's like, oh Christ, <laughs> shoot me! And meanwhile, like you know, I'm sitting here in my like. Ramon shirt listening to the birthday party at deafening volumes i'm like uh-huh so what what leads you to believe that i want to talk about this but right yeah well i live in berkeley now so i, I can kind of relate you know although everybody's that generation's getting super old you know so um it's kind of it's more like a geatric, geriatric um geriatric thing. garcia <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's pretty good <laughs> thank you that's a band name right there. Yeah, yeah, for real. Uh, so so then talk to me about, because you did, and you mentioned in one of the things we talked about that relocating, because you come from Montana, and then you know you, you spent time, there was like Denver, there was Seattle, before Bay Area, like there was like a, the steel pole bath, the prehistory, if you will. Yeah. You know, I can, so, <laughs> um, you know, growing up, I didn't fully grow up in Montana to be, 100% honest, I think I moved there when I was 9 or 10. Charlotte, you know, get off my screen. <laughs> yeah. well, Go ahead, sorry. That's, sorry, you're, you've got some kind of chat thing going, don't you? Like you're like... Yes. yes. Like a, on the side. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that, that's so modern of you. I know. It's, um, I'm, I'm like a multitasking marvel. Right, right. Uh, I forget what I was going to say. Oh, Montana. But yeah, you know, I don't know. It Like in some ways... You know, David Lynch is from Montana, right? And so, and I, I left home when I was pretty young, um, you know, 15 going on 16 and kind of got exposed to a lot of, you know, I'm, it's the seven, it was the seventies. So mm-hmm. like, I'm basically, you ever seen that movie Dazed and Confused? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, the, I'm, the, the esoteric art film Dazed and Confused. I believe I've seen right, that. Yeah. Right. right. The, I'm the kid. Like oh, that gotcha. Kid, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Except for instead of football jocks, like the older kids that were like the football dudes, like they were my enemies. And it was just all weirdos, stoner, actions, pre action sports, extreme skiing, you know, types, right? So, you know, the guys who we'd spend our day going and jumping off 80 foot cliffs into, you know, reservoirs and, right. and whatnot. And, uh, and just kind of a real outside of the mains, you know, I mean, Montana, speaking of no internet, like there was no cable television practically, right? Like no MTV, no. And so everything was automatically 20 years in the past. And so, um, it really kind of informed, uh, my early dark views of humanity, you know, um, right. Some of, some of the things I was exposed to, um, at the same time, it was super fun and, and, uh, you know, I, I got to, you know, I had a pretty wild teenage hood and played in a lot of bands and, um, you know, it was a small town. Bozeman at the time, I think was 10 or 11,000 people. And uh, in fact, a guy just did a, a documentary on the music scene in Montana oh, from really? that era, the, okay. the late seventies, early eighties kind of punk thing and you know he covers jeff ament from big sandy you know in pearl jam and Mm -hmm. um and uh albini a little bit right Right. like he's from montana yep before he moved to chicago that's right 
Exactly, right? And then there's this there was this band called the Pugs who were like Devo from Billings and they were hugely influential in Bozeman because they came to to college there. They're a couple two or three years older and one of those guys went on to become a famous film director. Um I forget what he he did like Red Rock West and you know some of those kind of noir films from the late 80s early 90s um that were pretty cool actually um but anyway so you know when i look back it's like it was a pretty rad scene actually um it's just when you're a teenager you kind of hate everything and you need to move on and i wanted to get to the big city and experience anyway so you know, I don't know. I think there's a lot to be said for coming from a small town, you know, because there's nowhere to go but up and out, you know. Um, yeah, you have to sort of – you don't have a choice. You have to devise your own form of entertainment in a lot of cases. And yeah, part of that helps you to def- decide what's important to you and what you are looking for from the world. Right, because it helps – it also says what you're not at the same time. Totally. But. Like you can, you can be like, yeah, you know these – you know, redneck homophobic idiots over here. I'm not that. <laughs> that is a thing that I am not. One hundred percent. You know, um, yeah, and especially back then, the '70s and early '80s. Like, there was even you know Democrats, quote unquote, as you know, as if that's a liberal definition, but um, were very patriarch. Everyone was fucking patriarchal, religious. You know, very controlling those boomers it's the fucking boomers you know yeah. they they just cannot let they still can't still let us can't have let <laughs> they won't do it they won't no. do it they just won't. and that's why that's what you know i technically te- okay this is a beef of mine technically uh you know i was born in 64 so that means i'm technically a boomer right but i don't understand how that fucking works because my parents are actual boomers Right, right, because <laughs> right, they're they're at the top end, and you're at like the dividing line. Right, and I, so how does how how do a parent and child not define different generations? Like that's just yeah, absurd. that doesn't make any sense. No, and my generation, you know, the slacker Gen X thing was a direct reaction to that patriarchal elbow on your the back of your neck thing, where yeah. it was like, okay, you're not going to let us have it, so we're going to go do something else, you know. We're gonna we're gonna slack. We don't care about what you care about. We're not gonna be consumers. We're not gonna be ambitious money people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, and we're gonna live quote unquote alternative lifestyles, right? So, anyway, that's a little bit of my beef, especially about um, you know that era and and rural America and whatnot. Well, so well anyway. those generational things are so ridiculous. Anyway, I mean, it, it's something where. I'm technically generation X, but like, it's like, I'm, I'm an in-betweener. And the, the best thing I heard from it was that I'm part of the Oregon trail generation, which I thought was amazing, but it's unfortunately only something I saw once in an article and nobody ever said it again. Uh, <laughs> but I like that though. Yeah. I like that. Cause it tells you everything you need to know. Like I, I played Oregon trail in school at lunch and like that tells you what, what you need to know. But it's like, I'm definitely not real. I'm not a millennial really but it's like i kind of feel like mostly left out of the gen x conversation also i'm just sort of in this in-between thing so i mean it's also arbitrary yeah because uh, i assume wait you're like what What year were you born 70 like late 77 december 77 right so you're a solid 10 to 15 years younger than i am right. so yeah you're a totally different generation as far as 
that goes, you know, even though we share at this point, you get old enough, everybody's the same age. Right. You know? Well, and but, especially when you come from punk rock, I think there's a certain amount of <laughs> things right. that, that transcend <laughs> other cultural touchdowns, right? right? Well, and that's sort of the, the thing that at the end of the day, like that, even though labels, you know, like don't, you can't really define yourself with labels. They're really helpful to like say, well, actually, these are my people. Like right. this is, you know, these I can relate to these people and the, everyone else. That's like I said, everyone else are civilians. And once you go into the civilian population, you got to figure each person out individually. And that's a lot of work, you know. Yeah. I'm exhausted just hearing you talk about it. It's terrible. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you, you're you're living in in Montana. You you have okay. your sort of cultural shorthand. You're defining yourself by what you aren't. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so I went to Japan for a couple of years. Well, actually, we moved to Seattle. Dale and I uh, had a band with a, f- a couple other people, um, dear old friends of mine. And we were do- we were huge in Bozeman, um, played some of the other cities in Montana. You know, we were playing four nights a week, five – wait, four hours a night, five nights a week kind of thing. You know, you bring your own PA, half mm, – yeah. you know, <laughs> right, right. 70% covers. You know, you sneak your originals in there. But we were kind of a new wave punk band quote unquote that brought out the college kids so the the you know the country bars would put up with us and we were we were pro like i listened back to that stuff and we could play and you know be in tune and all that stuff and so (laughs) meet um, all the baseline criteria of being a band which is nice (laughs) yeah (laughs) like our volume levels were reasonable and right right um and and people came out and danced and that's all the bar cares about because then they're gonna drink and yeah um and so we and we thought we'd go to Seattle and make it big. And, you know, of course, went to Seattle and got our you know hat handed to us, you know, <laughs> pretty fucking quickly. Um, but it was, you know, it was an adventure. We played a bunch of shows, you know, so this was 82, 83, maybe. Um, and then finally that that fell apart and we broke up and I moved to Japan because uh, uh, long story, but. Yeah, my dad had us was on sabbatical there, and so, but I just went and um, ended up in Tokyo for a couple of years and did my own weird art uh, music thing there for a while, um, and then I came back and kind of rehooked up with Dale, and we moved to Colorado together on this hilarious gig doing uh, what turned out to be sort of this experimental new age music project, but. We just got paid, so that's you know all that mattered. We drank a lot of coffee and sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, and when you're ju- of a certain age, it's sort of like the details matter a little less than like, hey, check it out, look at this thing we're doing. <laughs> yeah, cool. we're like 19 or 20, and just like I, I don't know, someone's paying us, and we don't really have to do much. So this is awesome. Were you playing with Darren uh, at this point, or no? Okay, it was it was before that. Um, we were in in Boulder, and we didn't. We were hanging out with this. There was a friend of ours, Nate Howe. Um, or Nate 9000 um, was living with us in Colorado and he's just a friend skier musician um, and we were uh, like just we were kind of hanging out with acoustic instruments mostly mm-hmm. getting really into um, uh, you know the idea of playing on the street not hippie style punk style still right but right. Um, and uh, coming and at it from so, a different place, but you know, maybe, maybe utilizing the same tools, but not <laughs> coming at it from the, the we'll call it the Grateful Dead mindset. How about that? Oh, yeah, right. It was definitely very punk, and and then we sort of in that 
in that process, we became at one point we decided we were going to like, okay, we should make a band. And we, (laughs) we had this thing where we had a newspaper subscription and we would go through and just pull the newspaper apart and just never throw it away. And it was just like all over the floor. So the house was slowly filling up with crumpled, cut up newspaper and, you know, it was just everywhere. And, uh, and we were cutting words out and taping them all over the walls. And um, and so eventually we were like, oh, I think the, the original was uh, Steel Pole Bathtub Sour Boot Voodoo Milk Cult. Which right, is, right, yeah. <laughs> it really flows out the tongue. <laughs> right. And, and so, and, you know, of course, this is my memory, which I have a re- weird fucked up brain that remembers things and kind of blurry concepts so you know dale you'll have to have dale on and he can correct all of this for you we've been talking we've been talking about it for a while it'll happen i don't don't know what his excuse is now like there's not not like he's got something else better to do so (laughs) well he has a great memory so you know that's the thing like he can actually remember the reality of it like the the quote-unquote proper way of remembering things yeah Um, yeah actual reality versus perceived reality but i mean i think there's a certain degree of rational effect every time you talk to different people from a group and that, that's okay yeah good good because that's about all i got um but uh anyway so you know in it true to form like because we we're both very into um you know the 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 new york factory scene and the sort of this idea of marketing as art form and whatnot and um and so dale started putting up posters before we were even performing oh that's right. and jesus I, I knew about this and i forgot about it so i'm glad we're talking and it about it it was such a great <laughs> thing we did that in san francisco too when we moved here um you know just putting up these really cool looking posters but with no date on it yeah and yeah every- and here's the reason why i remember it i did the same thing it's one of the many things i ripped off from you like before replicator was a thing we did the same thing it just these mysterious looking like oh wow what is that like and I was like, oh, yeah, I wholesale ripped that off from Steel Pole Bathtub, too. So there you go. Yeah, and it's really easy because then you don't have to go actually get a gig. And by the time right. you are getting a gig, <laughs> people have heard of you and yeah. think that you're important somehow, right? Oh, um, you got, you're the guys with those bizarre flyers. They're so mysterious looking. Yeah. Right, right. Um, Especially with, you the, know, the, you know, it's, you know, I, I assume that the artwork back then had the same sort of, you know, iconic visual look that later to find what steel pole bathtub and milk coat were doing yeah yeah oh i mean dale's had been doing that sort of cut up uh xerox his version of that concept for you know for a while and ransom note chic slash william burroughs slash yep (laughs) (laughs) exactly with his awesome genius twist you know there's this flavor to everything he does that is just so great um but uh which you know is fucking key to you know having a successful band you know it's just having good artwork um especially if you're a weird weird art band like we were um but uh so we were doing that and oh you know during that period we hooked up with this band we became really good friends with these guys blood flower and uh blood flower was comprised of amongst other people um dave eugene edwards who later became 16 horsepower and uh woven hand oh sure of course yeah killer um and then uh also slim cessna uh mark cessna and they were just this great like kind of um goth you know i guess that era was at mid 80s so um very kind of 
down tempo, moody, a lot of echoey guitar and mm, yeah. um, b- multiple vocals. They were just such a great band. Um, and so we kind of started hanging out with them and, you know, got even, you know, we started ratting our hair up more and, um, and our sort of street twang became a little darker and moodier. Um, and eventually we started getting electric instruments. And I mean, around that time we saw, um, I mean, we listened to everything, right? So, but I think we were probably listening to a lot of gun club, uh, as I recall. Yeah. Um, and, and it slowly started morphing into more of, you know, the, the post Bauhaus kind of thing because we were hanging out with those guys. And so we started getting instruments and Nate was playing stand, like he would, he was playing, uh, I think, uh, like, you know, a, a snare and a tom, um, just like a Psycho Candy. I can never fucking remember Jesus the name of that. Jesus and Mary Chain. Uh, every time. There is not a single time I try and remember Jesus and Mary Chain that I don't have to go to Psycho Candy first. And then, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what it is, you know. You like you set, like, a maze with a, with a thread that you can follow in your yeah, mind. Yeah. <laughs> I can always get there, but it just takes me a second. Um, but yeah, so he, you know, he was kind of doing it, you know, because he wasn't quote unquote a real drummer, but, um, and during that period was awesome. We played, we, I think our first show ever, we, we would go back to Bozeman cause we were in Denver and we would drive up to Bozeman, um, to open shows for, uh, Joe Howard's, uh, shows up in Bozeman. And so our first show was opening for the meat puppets. And, um, yeah. And then we like played with the, uh, mercy seat and, um, and eventually later. So, so fast forward a little bit, eventually we got like a quote unquote real drummer and, um, and we were getting louder and noisier and, you know, having amps and guitar, you know, becoming a, a rock band again. Cause we had done that obviously before when we were younger and, um, and eventually we kind of realized we needed, uh, like, oh, our drummer went off to be a pilot, I think. You know, his dad was like, okay, enough of this rock shit. You better go get your. <laughs> you better go fly and start flying stuff around. <laughs> yeah, become like a real a real adult and make real yeah. money or whatever. Enough of this fooling and, around business. <laughs> yeah, it was really, you know, and I think his dad had been in the, the you know, the Marines or something. So it was definitely one of those like, I, I captain, okay. And uh, and he wasn't really, you know, in it. he wasn't a lifer anyway. So um, so that's when we uh, moved to Seattle because uh, I think Darren – which, by the way, is now Dorothy, yeah, just Dorothy, to be clear. Exactly. Which, yeah. Just, and just Dor- I, Dorothy, not Dorothy Morex, but yeah, just Darren is Dorothy, Dorothy now, and we should we should make sure not to dead name Dorothy. No, no. I Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Do- I think Although it's Dorothy. If it's an alias, can you really be a dead, well, <laughs> I don't know. That's I, a separate know, question. And I, I try to, like... I mean, I think it's all like groovy, and but I have two very woke teenagers, you know, yeah. girls. And mm-hmm. so I... I know that, you know, as a old white dude, I am not really entitled to any sort of opinion or anything. But when it comes to like telling stories in the past, I have a really hard time applying Dorothy to Darren. Right. Like it's uh, right. just it's two, two different and they're still the same person. But um, it, for me, it's a harder it's a harder thing for, you know, it's like saying they it takes a lot of practice to um, do you know, to rewire your it, brain to, right. Yeah. To, um, to be, to do the right thing there. Yeah. Yeah. 
But anyway, so um, we drove out to we moved to Seattle to uh, adopt Darren into the band and um, live there for God, I want to say a couple of years, but it was probably only a year or and something. This is after this is after Mister Epp and the calculations, right? Yes, right. And I think uh, he had been living somewhere overseas or elsewhere or something and had just come back and was available and dale dale was friends uh with him at the time and was sort of like we have this guy's great we gotta go get this drummer and so i was like okay let's go seattle sounds great um and you know during that okay so this is the funny part so anyway we and and as that happened our, like the music we were listening to continued to morph, you know, and get darker and, and heavier. A lot of Henry Rollins started coming into the picture. Um, you know, uh, Big Black was sort of, you know, you know, Big Black came along a lot earlier, but, um, and, and I was exposed to it because of the Montana thing, but, um, you know, it just became much more part of our diet. And, mm -hmm. and Darren was part of, you know, infusing that SST. So anyway, so we're slowly but surely getting noisier. And we had another guitar player at the time who was not interested in going that direction. And so um, uh, Paul Rose, he ended up exiting the band at that point. And, um, and pretty much that's, you know, basically 85, 86, somewhere in there is when it's solidified into what became Steel Pulpata that everybody knows. And that's you know? when you, you uh, had that first cassette demo uh like around that around that time period like before the we yeah. own drills but the early no that it, so no the we own drills tape is the first one with, with the three piece like the three gotcha. of us okay um and then there the one before it the the house tape you know mm -hmm. the it's sort of the the folk art house cabin yeah, I, on, I have a copy on, of it somewhere if, if somebody put a gun to my head and said you need to produce this right now i'd be a dead man because i couldn't find it but. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's some char. There's definitely some charm to it. You can really hear what we were into. We were living at a house in outside of Denver, a little town called Littleton, and uh, and there was like a scene of remember that era when uh, if teenagers like got in trouble with their parents, they'd put them away in loony bins, like oh, the teenager yeah. loony mm -hmm. bin. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was happening in in this nearby town to Littleton, and so all those kids would escape from the loony bin and then come hang out with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> Some might say, out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit there. Uh, but uh, you know, we were all dirt poor, and um, yes. and we'd go buy potatoes and give them potato. We'd all eat potatoes together or whatever, um, just so that they didn't starve. And uh, yeah, potatoes are nice and cheap. <laughs> Like you right. get a little nutrition, <laughs> the loaf of bread for the treat, you yeah, know, yeah, well, exactly. as a treat. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, you can hear That's what that era was. So there was Paul Rose. You can hear him on there. Um, in fact, there's a, one of the, I forget what the song is called. Um, but it's, it's, it's like really beautiful and he's, you can kind of tell we were in a different, that was this, the space we we're in was sort of a bit of a different mindset, but you can sort of hear where we're going at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but you know, we had met this band, um, we would play, so we would still continue going. So then from Seattle to Bozeman and playing shows. Um, and we like went out and opened for Sonic youth, I think is one of the, our first shows as that three piece. Um, and they were just super into us. So we f then followed them to Denver 
Um, and since you know we had lived there, we knew a bunch of people, and we started playing shows there, and uh, just stuck around in Denver for a while playing shows. Um, you know, with the Warlock Pinchers, you know, it's sort of where that whole how we know all those those sort of those bands like Bumcon and and whatnot. Right. Um, and anyway, so the Rhythm Pigs came through, and I don't know if you remember the Rhythm, Rhythm Pigs. Pigs. Wow. <laughs> not heard about the rhythm pigs in quite some time no <laughs> right like kind of country punk yeah yeah and and they had this whole thing where they would go on tour quote unquote and they would basically move to a town and then like make girlfriends and stay there on people's couches playing shows until the town would sort of kick them out and then <laughs> <laughs> like like a wild west medicine show or uh... totally. <laughs> Or a grifter in the twenties or something along those lines. Just wait until you wear out your welcome and then <laughs> move yeah, on to the next like town. <laughs> run out of town while they're shooting at you. you right, know? right. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and so we thought we would try and do that. And we so we kind of booked some shows and tried to pull that off. But Denver was really the only place in Bozeman that we could actually do it because we knew enough people that we could, you know, hop around. And I guess we weren't enough of ladies men to really have places, <laughs> right, places right. to stay or whatever. Um, and so we had, I had a really dear old friend in San Francisco. And uh, so we kind of came out here. And they had a warehouse in East Oakland, and we played a couple shows and just were immediately like, this is – we got to come back here. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and so, you know, in those shows, I think those first couple of shows were like, you know, Christ on Parade and Op Ivy. And, yeah. you know, and this, the scene was banging, as they say, you right. know. Um, and so that's – and then we moved back to Seattle, get our shit together, and then kind of move, move down to San Francisco. And that's sort of – the beginning of you know the steel pole bathtub as the world yeah. knows it so and well and it's you know there are elements on that that ep the we on drills like there's there's elements of what you guys would do there it definitely sounds like you know a baby pictures version of stipple bathtub but of course butterfly love is really when it's kind of like that seems like the first statement of intent uh recording for what you guys were doing that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the whole package, right? The art yeah. and the, you know, the, the kind of appropriationalism and, um, and the noise and the, you know, the writing. I, it's so funny. I still struggle with the writing a little bit, but I'm super into the paradigm. Like, I'm not so much into like, well, we never, we didn't have internet or phones or, because mm -hmm. you just can't, you can't explain that to the kids. And honestly, they don't give a shit. They don't you know, care they're at like, all. and, and, they, and you know what? They shouldn't. It doesn't matter. No, it's like whatever, loser. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, like that sounds dumb. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, you can't imagine how much dumb stuff we had to do. <laughs> <laughs> but you can. But the like the paradigm of the time, I think, is really interesting. You know, and you think about, you know, oh, oh, so quarantine. I'm so glad we didn't start this with quarantine, but. Uh, same here because I feel like I've been doing that a lot because the first thing you ask is like how are you doing and it's like well yeah I'm in quarantine oh yeah me too and literally everyone else <laughs> I mean yeah I'm not suffocating in a tent with uh, you know with yeah. none of my family around thank you I'm yeah, yeah. there's other people doing far worse we have Netflix that's therefore way yeah. easier than it was being on tour anytime in the past uh, you know <laughs> couple right. decades before this <laughs> exactly you know uh, 
I mean, I'm definitely old enough. I'm very paranoid about getting the virus, but um, but still. So you and you'll relate to this. It, it made me think of you a little bit. Is uh, my wife and I, mostly my wife, but I do it from time to time. Do this thing where uh, we've contributed a bunch of money, and there's this organization that. Uh, buys like 50 meals twice a day from two restaurants. So they're cycling oh, awesome. through lo- local restaurants sure. and and then um, delivering them to healthcare workers on the front lines, that's right? That's awesome. That's so killer. Yeah, that's and it's, good. And, it's, and so all we do is we're the driver, right? right. And, and, you know, we've got it down like to where you, you call, you arrange it, you pull up, you ha- pop the hatch in the back, you know, so because I really, really, really don't want to get this thing, you know, like I could easily be one of those people that's like, oh, well, he was alive last week. Yeah, <laughs> um, totally. Because it happens very quickly that way. Yeah. yeah. So like I'm no hero. But um, anyway, so I, last night I w- drove to this little restaurant that's down like at 12th and Webster, you know, downtown Oakland. And uh, and then was driving to Summit, which is just right. You just go right through downtown Oakland yeah. to go to Summit. And uh you know, holy shit, like everything was boarded up. Oh, dude, it, you know? it looks like 28 days later or something, right? I mean, it it's was crazy. Well, the crazy thing is, is it looked like Oakland in the 80s. And that's <laughs> where there was just nobody like anywhere out and about. <laughs> well, I mean, not that, but it was pretty like, you, know, you think about that. Oh, because it was boarded up. Oh, God, I got, yeah. no, nobody was open. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you yeah. know, like the, that uptown neighborhood, quote unquote, right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, in the late 80s, that was pretty it was barren enough that you were scared you know it was like you know someone was going to approach you with a gun it looked like mad max or something (laughs) right you know and and now it's like there's the you know the fox theater and the uptown and it's like where you if if i want to go see bands that's usually the area i'm going to right yeah um and you know it's it's kind of a little bit of that austin thing there's enough people on the street now that you know and to drive through it and have it be like that 80s kind of style of like bleakness was really like like it was like oh shit is that what we're is that, that we're what we're, for? Yeah. what we're looking at again you know and <sighs> yeah so anyway quick rewind that's you know when i think about um those early records uh and our love of kind of that the dark story you know and it was like sure you know albini was writing stuff like that and clearly rollins was um but you know everybody was harry cruz bukowski you know it's like very dark hubert selby jr i mean there's there's plenty of (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know it was a dark time kind of right like uh and but we reveled in it and so um i don't know i you know it's i have you have you do you have the new remastered copy of Tulip? I do. Yeah, it's, it's lovely. I, I picked it up the second I knew it existed, basically, and I really enjoyed the the liner notes to kind of help give give the context for the times and things like that. Because especially as a band that was as mysterious as Steel Pole Bathtub was, which is part of the allure, there is very little information to be found unless you were like someone that was there. And I was a little too young; like I wasn't allowed in a lot of these places, nor should I have been. So, right. so, right. so to be able to be able to learn about it in the line those, notes was great. Those dark dens of iniquity, dens of iniquity. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's it was it was nice to be able to, to glom onto whatever context uh, was provided there. That still, you know, there's an allure of mystery about the band. Still, it's not like it was all laid bare and 
forensically analyzed or anything, but well, good. I thought it was a lovely that was, package. <laughs> that the mystery is definitely part of the goal. I think always, you know, just a little bit. Um, but you know, those if you read like the three different descriptions of that era, like if you read uh, Dorothy and Dale's, they're they're pretty bleak, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah it's uh, it's not like you know the magical Harry Potter side of things. It's it's more the like. Yeah, watch your ass <laughs> side of things, which also matches from, you know, my experience first moving to Oakland was, was like, oh, no, this is this. This is you have to you have to watch out where you're where you're going here. And you, you must treat the area with respect and be aware at all times because bad things can and will happen. And then, of course, now that's artisanal uh, mac and cheese and uh <laughs> Totally. You know, you know, it's everything's like totally brunched out. Where it's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> this is not what this used to look like. I don't know what to right. tell you. <laughs> Which it's pretty. You know, I guess we're describing gentrification is what we're doing. But I mean, you know what I mean? Where it's well, sort of. I mean, but it's also a giant cultural shift. Yeah, I mean, right, yeah, gentrification. Right. Like, you know, it's it's it's. <laughs> I mean, I have a bunch of feelings about the whole thing in general, but. You know, in, in, when you think about context in artisanal mac and cheese, it's a lot harder to get up and sing some song about like you know sex with uh, you know tw- tw- uh, you know Siamese twins and right. then like child <laughs> sacrifice yeah. in Florida, right? Like, and by the way, try the veal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a different it's a different vibe and a different mindset because there were and and as you all know, there's this there's been a lot of talk of like old San Francisco of late on this show for whatever reason. And this, there was this idea that like, there could be anything around the corner. Like it could literally be anything. Oh yeah. I mean, we, well, okay. So <laughs> good or bad that, that we had <laughs> the or early, or. like when we made butterfly love, we had this apartment on Van S at like 21st. You remember the old Cala? Yeah. Cala, yeah. Cala foods. We were like half a block away from that, um, in towards town, you know? And, uh, it, that you know, we would take the the um, 21st Street Bart or 24th Street, and uh, and you, you just never knew. Like, it, luckily, the thing about being a punk in that era, or that's whatever you would call whatever we were doing, you know, um, was that we had nothing. Like, you know, maybe I had two dollars or something that was my burrito for the day, um, but literally there was no reason to mug us or. Do you didn't have anything exactly? Why, why would you bother? <laughs> yeah, and and we were also dumb and tough enough to kind of you know march around in those spaces. But uh, you know, there's definitely lots of stories. Anyway, so I remember we had this apartment, and I had the big room in the front with the bay windows, and I was paying two hundred dollars a month. You know, um, which is that's how much the window would cost these days. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you just, just get the window. You have to just sleep the bay. on the sill. You yeah. Stand up. You stand in the bay portion of the window, right? Like, yeah, maybe get one of the, one of those uh, re- like restraints that you use for stretching out the back, and you can sleep that way. <laughs> totally. Um, but you know, I saw so much violence go on out on that street from my window. Yeah. You know, I'd hear some space screaming, look out, and there would be two guys just beating the shit out of somebody, and. Um, yeah, there was just a lot of gnarliness going on. And so, you know, I don't know. I always tried to, akin to those other artists that I was talking about, trying to cast 
for better or worse, trying to cast that ugliness in a positive light. You know what I mean? Maybe not right. positive. Positive is the wrong word. But like at, just try and put some mystery and beauty to it in a way that, you know, um, that you just kind of – and it, I, like I say, it kind of comes from my exposure to weird shit in Montana too, you know, um, where you're like, holy shit, this is so Lynchian what I'm going – like what I went – like in <laughs> <Right>. retrospect, <laughs> like but, you know, before Eraserhead came out or maybe right around that same time. But, you know, kind of seeing some things you're like – this, you know, he wasn't just making all that shit up. A lot of that was like things that if you went out into rural poor Montana, you could see those things happen, you know, yeah. um, or things very similar in vibe. And so inclusive you know, even of the Dennis Hopper style, like, what are we stepping into here? Like Blue Velvet, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> where you got Dean Stockwell singing. You're like, what? In the name of hell is going on right now. And you, you're like, okay, so I'm right now, I'm in a town of the population like 400. Yeah. And this evil guy like controls at least half the town. Right. And, exactly. <laughs> and if things go south, like my, you know, my experience of this could become very, very evil. Yeah. And I could have be at the wrong, either, either, and either way you look at it, whether you're on the wrong end of that stick or the right end of that stick, it's ugly. Like it's, there's, yeah. you know, there's, there's, and so, there's all these untold tales of minor miseries and major ones that you wouldn't necessarily yeah. even be beholden to. Right. You know, and so then you, you fast forward and it's bleak, whatever. And, you know, and so you kind of, you know, now I'm older and I've had therapists and, you know, worked through all that kind of shit. But, um, you know, you, you got to do your best to try and like make it so that you're like, oh, wait, like these things that I was witness to or had done to me or whatever are not horrible. Maybe they're actually beautiful. You know what I mean? Um, right. and, F and so finding anyway. the allegorical way of representing that and, uh, turning right. it into something cool. Whereas maybe the experience itself is like, there's nothing cool about it, but using that in some way to make something to take ownership. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, kind of, and if you look at like, you, were you a raw comics fan? Oh yeah. Oh Jesus. Wow. That's something I haven't thought of in a while. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, see, that's a good, just so you open one of those, you know, and suddenly it's 1986. Right. And it's like, Oh, this is what they were doing in New York, right? Because you think about New York in the 80s, you had the Lower East Side. And if you went too far um, east, you know, that, that neighborhood was not to be fuck it, fucked around with either, you know? And so anyway, it's sort of – I don't know. I kind of – I like to dwell on these things a little bit just because it's the paradigm of the art. Like, you know, the art didn't come out of a vacuum and it, you can't just – put it next to artisanal mac and cheese and have it make <laughs> sense. Right, know? right, right. It has to have context. And, and that's something that I feel there was like a noir-esque element a lot of times to what you guys did in that way that it, it, it almost feels like it uh, preceded one of those kind of, is it a documentary or is it, a, you know, is this a reenactment? Like what actually happened? Like one of those... <laughs> events that now that happen, you know, like, like Slender Man or something along those lines. I feel <laughs> right. like Slender Man would be like a, a steel pole bathtub, a rich source of material if you guys were around in, in the Slender Man era. Right. No, I mean, that's exactly. And, you know, you look at other, you know, there's a whole lot of other bands doing things like that. And it was sort of really at the end of the day, it was sort of, 
if if you were able to uh, bend it to the pop medium enough, right? Like, or or somehow make it less harsh, yeah. then you could, you know, kind of pilfer it off on the mainstream, I guess, you know. Um, and and in fact, I mean, I'm super aware, like, because my work now, like, I'm making music that often is consumed by tens and tens of millions of people. And so I have to be super like, uh, aware of how far I push in any direction. Um, you know, and you know, because it's not necessarily its job to be disruptive. I mean, maybe it is, but it's not, not all the time. Like, in fact, sometimes it's better just to have it be something that just is there. And it's, it's, it's not the focus. Right. Yeah. You're, you're just part of the band. Like, the bigger band, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. the, the artists are doing their, they're part of the band and the animators and the writers and, you know, everybody's part of this giant band. And sometimes so, you're playing lead guitar. Sometimes you're playing the triangle. It's okay. You know, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you're just not, you're just sitting on your, you know, holding your bow on your lap. Yep. Right. Like, Wait, waiting, waiting 16 measures until it's time to play. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, and uh, and that's I mean that's just but times are different and but interestingly, people are now like I think the noise slash industrial thing people are becoming very interested in the especially those textures you know like the distortion and because we just went so digital for so long that yeah. you know it's all of a sudden it's like how do you make that sound and it's like well you <laughs> turn on an amp and. You know, screw with the the wiring so that your guitar is shorted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're purposely trying to make like a wrong sound good and a, a good sound wrong, and, and yeah. that's in that kind of. God, I've, I've you know, it's, it's hard not to repeat a theme when you're doing the show practically every day at this point. But I've talked a lot in, in recent episodes about this idea of like the drone thing and and the experience of going to see the drone show, you know, whether it's like sleep right. or sun, but having the experience of having this visceral volume where you physically feel it moving and everybody there for the same thing as a communal event. And yeah. the fact that that's something, you know, unless you have like the Marty McFly uh, speakers, <laughs> the beginning of back to the future, you're not going to be able to have that experience. You're, you're just not. You are not. No, no. Um, in fact, I Dale t- turned me on to I forget what it's called. There's some festival in Minneapolis that's like this 24 hour sleepover thing. Like people bring pillows and bl- and there's oh, wow. just this music that goes nonstop for like 24 hours or something. And um, and then and now of course they stream it, so I can sit comfortably in my home. <laughs> right, right. You, you have your own pillow. To, <laughs> you need to come yeah. to your home. Yeah. <laughs> tune tune in for a little bit and then tune out and whatnot. But uh, you know, it's that that sort of thing. In fact, I missed this show, but I wish I'd I'd seen it. But uh, my, I think my engineer, I don't know, you know Noah Landis, who uh, yeah, was Noah. in yeah, uh, Christ, Christ on Parade and Neurosis. Neurosis now yep, yep. Um, he's done all my engineering um, for fifteen years now. Um, anything I record, basically, uh, he's he's part of because he can like. Like I'm pretty good with the production stuff, but it's like I just am too. I like big picture. I like the the. I'm, I'm a composer, right? Like that's. I'm more about the structure and the com- the composition of the thing, w- whether it's noise or sounds or you know an or- orchestral you know composition. Uh, 
but he's like the the super ears and knows all the names of the microphones and all that shit. Uh, and, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's, he, just, he's he's the Scotty to your Kirk is what is what you're saying. Right. And he yeah. <laughs> and like Scotty, he puts up with my bullshit, which yeah. I am forever grateful for. You know, um, and he's just the greatest guy. One of my favorite people in the world. Um, but he, he, I think he went to the show that was Laurie Anderson at, uh, I want to say is the Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, but it might be one of the other churches. And she had all of, um, Lou Reed's guitars laid out uh-huh. and like amped up. And like, she was going around and strumming them in open tuning and getting them like resonating. Right. And apparently, like, just filled this church with the sound of Lou Reed's guitars oh, that's for, awesome. like, four hours or something. Like, people were just laying in the pews, like, just taking it in. I was like, oh, that's fucking rad. That like, sounds like as good an elegy as I can think of for Lou Reed. Jeez. Exactly. You know? So cool. Um, anyway, yeah, drones. Yeah. And, and Noah does also play with you. I, I don't want to get too much more, of course, but uh, within the... Which I, which I believe last I heard it was still called First Church Radio Shack, right? Like Noah's. Right. You've done at least one show because I saw it. We, we have done one show thanks to Conan Neutron. Um, <laughs> be browbeating <laughs> you into doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, to be totally. So you know me now well enough now that I finally figured out why I'm so slow to agree to do anything is because I have this weird thing of like, I don't want to reply to people if I can't say the right thing. Mm. Like, and so I'm just always like, Hmm, I don't don't know. (laughs) It's terrible. It's a terrible trait, but uh, I'm working on it. Well, but I think that was interesting because it is coming from a more composed standpoint. It's, I think it, it sort of splits the difference between, you know, it's, it's hard to say flaming lips now because that means a bunch of different things. But like the more kind of uh, composed orchestral st- stuff there, along with like the more weird cinematic heaviness of neurosis and things along those lines, like it kind of right. brought a little bit of both those things while still sounding very much, you know, sprung from the uh, from the head of Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> from yourself as well like it had its own thing but the only but it's weird because what i'm talking about isn't that it necessarily sounded like those things but it utilized um similar cultural shorthand for it and i, th- I find that really interesting because it's not that it, it, there wasn't like a through line for it from other things that you've done but it definitely had its own voice to it it was really interesting i really enjoyed it Cool. Well, I hope I do, you know, Noah and I. So maybe do do another show at some point. (laughs) Record something. (laughs) We plan to at least finish that record. Like there is, there's a whole story, uh, beginning, middle and end. And, you know, there's not material for all of the story yet. But, um, you know, so so I did read a review that said like a rock opera or something. Well, that's not really right. But, you know, fair enough. Like fair, you know. A, a string of rock songs that tell a story. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. I mean, it's deeply conceptual. So, I mean, I think by nature of it, you're, you're the flirtation with the, the words rock opera are just going to be, it's in the general orbit, whether you like it or not. Right. Yeah. But, uh, that, 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 I think that'll happen. And, and yes, like it's hard not to, uh, at this point, like I finally have control of a lot of my music, you know? And so, um, it'll be like if steel pole 
ever does something again, which is entirely possible. I mean, it comes up at least three or four times a year. And you know, usually it's the same text. You know, we have this ongoing text thread that is like, hey, have you checked out this? What are you listening to? Like, uh, have you like I'm going through this thing with this psychological, you know, whatever. Like yeah. we're all really good friends still. And um, and then there will be like, hey, someone wants us to play this festival and such and such. And, you know, and then we're like. And inevitably, it comes around to like, well, if we're going to do that, let's just go rent, you know, uh, Tim Green's place for a month and hang out in the woods and make a record instead. Right. Right. And so right. <laughs> so like, then you're like changing, you're, you're changing, you're expanding the scope to the point that the scope becomes focused on something else entirely. And, and it's impossible anyway, at least currently. But, uh, but, you know, it's one of those things like if I were to do that again, it, I'd have to let all that go. Like I'd have to step back and be like, OK, I'm just a part of the band and, you know, I'm going to contribute the parts that I do. And but um, but we were always all three of us contributing in on multiple levels at the same time anyway. So, um, you know, it's. It w- I would love to do it, honestly. Not to bring that topic up myself. No, no. Usually I'm the- I mean, it's 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 okay for you to br- to break news like that. It's I don't mind. <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't it's not gonna offend me. Don't worry about that. Uh, that's wonderful, and you know, it's something where there's been enough of a new generation of fans of weird music that there's people that listen to those records still and love them that maybe they weren't even like born (laughs) when you guys were around the first time, you know what I mean? Like flat out, like, and it's, and there's an appetite for it. Is an appetite where like, Hey, suddenly you're going to be a band and make your money on touring. No, probably not. But that said, there's enough of an appetite for it that, you know, if that were an avenue you were going to pursue, I think you'd find that there'd be, not just a bunch of uh, bearded potbellied old timers hanging out necessarily. <laughs> right. Well, I mean that's the beauty of the modern thing, right? Is like there's there's room for every niche, right? right. Like you can you can kind of do that. I mean, I definitely there's you know like when you look at neurosis or bands that can still go out and fill a theater and and you know because they've just continually built it up over time. I kind of wish we'd done that a little bit. But then when I look back, it's like we needed to not be touring anymore at a certain point, you know, like, you know, I think the last year we toured eight months or something. And, um, you know, it it takes its toll for sure. Well, Um, it seemed like it went to the point of it being from sustainable to not sustainable. And I think that's, you know, that that's tough there. And there are bands that. I've warned them. I'm like, like, look, I love that you're hitting it this hard, like black flag, but you're going to burn out. <laughs> like you got to be careful, man. Like just, I'd, I'd certainly myself. I always am totally okay with trading, not being able to do everything all at once, all the time with sustainability. And yeah. That's, that's, it's a hard thing. Usually you need some retrospection or, Oh, we fucked that up. <laughs> <laughs> to, to realize that, but uh, yeah. I think it's important. I, I mean, huge respect to the bands who have managed to keep going too. Yeah, you yeah. know, like the Melvins and Neurosis, yep. and you know, on and on and on. Like, uh, there's I they've built their I, lives in such a way to be able to do it and present it the way they want to present it, and you know, it's wonderful. Absolutely, Ab- huge, and no, there's no, you know, it's one of those funny things in life where you can't 
you can choose to do this or that or the other thing, but you can't choose to do this and then claim that at the same time. You know what I mean? It's a really that's one of those weird things about getting older is that you can claim the things you've done. Like that's totally fine. It might not be very um, cool to claim things, but um, you definitely should not be choosing one and benefiting from it and then claiming the other. And so I have just enormous respect for uh, bands, touring bands and and working artists. Like and I'm a working artist, but I mean like a performing artist, I should say. Right. You know? Yeah. So I, I do want to kind of there, there's a couple things I want to get into, not the least of which is that I think we left it at Butterfly Love. So oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, so Butterfly Love did its thing. There's the there's the Marsha Brady artwork, which is a whole still story comes up, still comes it's up. Still, I saw an Instagram the other day where some like in the thread, you know, I got tagged mm-hmm. and then in the thread like the someone tagged uh, Marsh, uh, Marie McCormick. And I was just like, oh, come on. She knows. Like, she's known for 30 years. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> can we just not remind her, you know? Like, <laughs> okay, she's feeling litigious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that there's anything there, but still, you know, like, um, no, 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 for sure. But it, so that, that, so that's, that's Butterfly Love. You start, um, you know, Tom, Tom Flynn puts that out yep. that starts a relationship with boner records uh and then at the same time you're starting to start working towards the stuff on lurch and wasn't milk cult kind of conceived of around the same time i know the first thing you did was that frank grow soundtrack the love god right thing. but that the was love like a god couple years later thing. yeah it was around that i mean milk cult was always sort of like if you listen to just the samples in the Steel Bowl records, like that was sort of milk cult at the same time. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, Dale and I were had both been doing – I mean if you go back to that tape in Seattle even, the the We Own Drills, there's there's cassettes playing during Kung Fu Love and mm-hmm. and, whatnot, and we just hadn't quite melded the two together. You know what I mean? Right. In As far as, as we took it later with, um, you know uh, – with Lurch, you know, like I think that there's quite a bit in in Butterfly Love, but Lurch really starts to push it far forward, and um, and so uh, that stuff was always there. Mill Cult, I want to say it did start because of the Frank Grow film, um, which like I was working on, and then slowly but surely Dale became part of, and and then towards the end Conco, um, and uh, and so and. I think, though, you know, he only used a portion of that uh, or no, he used it for the pilot. So he made like a, a a rough version of that film that was super fucked up. And the final film is super bizarre and and like in outer space um, and harsh and weird. Uh, and but Stu from. Um, oh, God, the Australian band, um, not big King, not King Snake Roost, but the other one. Oh, um huh uh uh let's see um oh my god i can't believe i can't remember this um anyway he uh in fact he just uh has a new band in new york city i forget what they're called but it's like noise rock all stars or something kind of along i mean that's essentially what it is but um i think it's also even kind of called something like that uh-huh. uh, but anyway he ended up 
doing the music for the actual Sony film um, later on. But that kind of got us on this studio-only weirdo, like, we're going to go make these weird records that, um, you know, that are purely constructs, you know? Never meant to be played live, never meant to be necessarily, like, just sort of like a, a weird art thing in and of itself. Yeah, like purely just who knows if anybody will, you know, t- if Tom puts it out, that's fine. Like, um, but then they ended up kind of being more interesting and and uh, consuming more of our time. And and they, they you know, we kind of came up with this this formula that was sort of like a do you know what a um, exquisite corpse is? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like the, 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 the drawing game where you have the uh, <laughs> you start off with one thing and then someone else kind of comes up with something else and the idea is you put it together but nobody really has any idea what the other people what the other are working person on. done yeah it's <laughs> right. like the, the drawing versions let's say you draw a head and then you draw the neck and then you fold the paper so the other person only sees the neck and then they draw right. from there like, and, like you know enough to get started but you don't have any understanding of what the other folks are doing Right, right, exactly. And you can do that with poems and, you know, there's all manner of exquisite corpses out there. Um, And so, and, you know, because computers were just kind of becoming part of the studio process, which is another like pre-internet, like back where we had actually used, (laughs) yeah, you had to calibrate the tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so, uh, so we were like, oh, the computer can allow us to do all these kind of constructionist things that now we all take for granted. You know, it's like, of course, you can construct music because there's whole there's whole genres that are purely that. Right. Like. Um, right. But back then it was like, oh, OK, what can we do with this new thing? Right. Um, and so one of the things we came up with is like, oh, if we get people in, we can we can constrain what we play for them. And then get them to improvise to the constrained version of this thing to kind of draw different style and types of performances out of them, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and so we started doing that. And um, and I think we did ended up doing three or four records that way. Um, yeah. So you had the so obviously yeah there, there, was, there was the soundtrack first and then the um, the next one is uh, Burner Berry, Berry which came right. up recently when I had Billy Gould on and. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I sort of ambushed him with that one. And he was very surprised and pleased to hear about that. Because uh, you have the Neurosis guys on there, um, like Blake from Jailbreakers yeah. on there, Patton's on there, uh, Carla from Ethel Me Pla- uh, Geraldine Fibbers. Um, right. Um, Mark Davies, oh, I think, is on that too. Yeah. Oh, Mark Davies is fantastic on there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we were kind of just bringing everybody we knew that could, you know, contribute in some way. And, um, and it was that was a little more like just kind of by the seat of the pants, like, OK, here, we're going to try this thing and let's get a bunch of guests in and uh, that'll be cool. And then but then it kind of started to formalize this idea. And we went to Japan and did it there, which turned into um, Namjoon. Wait, no, Vietnam June Pike. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wait, is that right? Vietnam June Pike or was it uh, uh, what's it's one of, you know, it's like. It's one of those things where you string all the words together, you know, like the yeah, names. Uh, port, the, the like almost portmanteau, but it's not. Uh, yeah, uh, but let's see if I can find here. I'll, like I have the internet here, so I can... <laughs> <laughs> you, you got the internet. Wow, you say, don't say. 
Bruce Lee, Marvin Gaye, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's not, not Vietnam June Pike because that's a really good one. But um, yeah, Bruce Lee, Marvin Gaye was kind of uh, built off of all these noise artists that we we when we were on tour in Japan and then stayed an extra week or two and um, and kind of did one of these uh, constructions with a whole bunch of Japanese art Japanese artists, including the guy like from Violent Onsen Geisha and you know so on a bunch of that that sort of scene. Um, and then, uh, and then we went to France and did Project M13, which was which actually a super organized, like paid for by the French government. We went and set up shop in Marseille right. um, at La Friche and brought in, you know, God, it was like three to five sets of musicians all day long, <laughs> every day, and it was super cool. It was really fun. Yeah, crazy. Weird crazy oh, by the way lubricated goat was it lubricated goat lubricated goat oh, thank Jesus. you that's well better now than when i was just about to go to sleep which is usually when i would think of that <laughs> i know that's yeah like a lubricated goat <laughs> shit. and then you're texting me right like i thought of it <laughs> yeah thought, exactly um so yeah project m13 obviously it's a uh, fascinating record it, it, it's really kind of um the same but different vibe for than the other milk cult things, but definitely like some bold sort of like no rules direction on there. Like there's all kinds of different songs on there. And I mean, it was, it was like a grant from the, from the French government, right? Is that, that's, that's... yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, which is amazing. And the crazy thing is, is that while we were doing, I mean, it was the best, like in, you know, to be, I have a giant apology to my ex-wife, Claire, who set the whole thing up um, because she's from Marseille and um, is really tight with the, the, the people who sort of hosted the whole thing. And, and she didn't get thanked on the record. So if you're listening, Claire, I am still sorry about that. Like, move. <laughs> so what well, was wasn't on purpose. It just somehow like it just slipped, you know, yeah, slipped yeah, our yeah. minds or whatever. Um, but while well, we were there, props on Protonic Reversal now, so it all works. Yes, out. <laughs> yeah, like see, bigger and better than ever. Um, but uh, we were, you know, we were staying. So the La Friche is this huge art compound that they only have in Europe. I've never seen this sort of thing any anywhere else. And it used to be the Galois Tobacco Factory, right? So right. it's this giant complex with, you know, big buildings and and spaces where they would smoke or whatever dry the the tobacco leaves and um and then there was the director's house and we got to stay in the director's house that had this big studio in the basement so we spent a month there like i said like kind of screwing around with musicians all day and then partying with them at night um and uh and while we were there there the 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 what we would call the federal government but like the main government of france had a giant election and they voted in a new government and they voted in a new um uh uh cultural minister and they all came and visited so like we had this visit from like <laughs> wow <laughs> the heads of french culture and they yes. were like okay we want the americans here and we want to see what they're doing and it was super cool um it was yeah it was a it was that was a you know one of those dreamy experiences that was super duper fun and um you know playing and working with dale and conco was just always a blast anyway because you know it's sort of like steel Bolbatha, but with this other you know conco is 
at the time it felt like in way younger, but he's probably only like five or six years younger. Right, which as as time goes on, that matters less and less. But at the the time you're like, oh, you're just a kid. (laughs) But when he, so he showed up in like we were. So if you look at those records, uh, Butterfly Love was the one that we had practiced and played a billion times, right? Mm -hmm. And. And then, um, you know, we toured with Flaming Lips a bunch around that time. And, and they were always saying, like, you guys are so powerful live. Like, you got to, your next record needs to have that power. Like, mm-hmm. it, you should make a record that has. And their record, I think it was Taste Metallic or Cloud's Taste Metallic yeah. or whatever, came out right around that time. And it, like, you could see they were trying to kind of do the Nirvana, like, it's live. It sounds kind of live. Yeah. Um, you know, the drums are a little distorted kind of thing. Um, and so, we then made Lurch, which they were like, well, okay, we didn't quite mean that, but you know, <laughs> yeah, that's it's sort of like, you might want to leave, leave something in there for the, uh, for the proletariat <laughs> to be able to latch onto. <laughs> right. um, pretty, br- pretty brutal record. I mean, I, I dig, I dig the hell out of it. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, Oh, okay. There we go. Well, and you know, to be fair, it was like Billy Anderson was kind of new on the scene and he helped us kind of forge in that direction. And yeah. I, you know, he's such a great, great producer um and you know i'm always grateful when he calls that record out as being influential for him but uh you know it's pretty intense and brutal and then so when we were going to make tulip um we had sort of hooked up with uh, not human um mm-hmm. who uh if he did air traffic and or sound traffic control which is this weirdo art electronic thing that was big in the like late like in the 70s and then san francisco and um you know good friends with a lot of you know this sort of extreme uh new york art scene but older like 10 years older than me right mm, like okay. that sure like a little different and he was coming to our shows a bunch and um was like hey i've got this studio uh the um the you know sound traffic controls place the the compound rhythm and noise compound that's the oh. other thing it is rhythm and noise out in um uh hunter's point and do you guys want to come use that studio to and so we went out and checked it out and there was all kinds of crazy contraptions and weird noise making shit and super industrial you know um yeah old san francisco the, uh, kind of yeah vibe. <laughs> cacophony society um you know good like because i have really i'm dear friends with some of the srl people survival research right. labs yeah, yeah. which is another uh, thing from that era, the robots, you know, the robot war performances used to be next door to a tiny telephone for a long right? time. And, um, exactly. what was it? They had that one, like it, sh- <laughs> it sh- the, the tree cannon where it like shot the trees. Um, <laughs> well, there's an air cannon, but oh my God, they had so many great things like all the- kinds of dangerous ass stuff, which is great <laughs> because I mean, it's, you know, at the time you're like, that's awesome. Yeah, giant tractors with spinning razor blades that would come at the audience. And exactly. It's all like super Mad Max stuff. And at the time, like, wow, this this is just what this is what life is like. It's like, oh no, this is going to change considerably. Total miracle that no one got. Yeah, no one. Nobody. No audience member got hurt. Nobody like, was maimed. Nobody died. It's a minor miracle. Right. You know, uh, you know, uh, Saint Teresa and you know Mark Pauline. Like he, should, yeah, 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 he yeah. should be sainted that he never somehow is a miracle. Like yeah. no one got hurt. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and so, uh, so we were like, yeah, let's, let's do this. This will be weird. And it'll be the exact opposite of what we just did. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to go in and we're going to construct this, you know, Beatles style. We're going to go, you know, kind of construct this record. Um, 
which turned into Tulip. And But then Not, who we thought was like this big producer, was like, well, I don't really do that. So I've got this kid who's 18 and just moved here from Arizona. <laughs> but he's really good with the knobs, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, okay. um, uh, I guess. Okay. Like, sure. sure. <laughs> right. And that was Conco. Uh, you know, so that, Eric oh, so that was Eric Holland. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All and right. he was literally off the bus from fucking Arizona and 18 and like, you know, got like to get up at five 30 in the morning uh -huh. and went to bed at nine at night. And we were like, couldn't have been like, we went to bed at five 30. <laughs> so you like the opposite schedule of him at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And, uh, and so, uh, he, but you know, we t became really close friends, but you know, he kind of came like, he came to San Francisco and started going to raves and right. was just super because it was that era. Like, yeah. you know, raves were, were big and, you know, kind of like, you know, big scene. And, uh, and so when we started doing milk cult, he really brought this other, you know, angle to that kind of constructionist thing and, you know, the disco stuff and, and some of the things that I wouldn't have brought in as sort of the basis of a piece of music, but I certainly could put my guitar into a wah pedal and, you know, yeah. and play along. And, um, and so it kind of really, you know, when you deconstruct those records, it's, it's kind of cool. The three, the, the three different voices that are going on are so different, but different in a different way than a normal band. You know what I mean? Like they're, right. they're, just radically different. <laughs> so, so talk to just a little more. And I know that if somebody were to pick up the reissue of Tulip, which is, I believe they're, they're still taps that available. Uh, they could get a lot of this story, but talked about the recording of that record a little more. So it was sort of like we had, you know, we were writing songs the way we normally would. And we still, we put the drum set. I mean, here's the other thing is like, if you look at butterfly love, uh, Tom gave us $500 to record that record, right? right? <laughs> and so he went into Razor's Edge with with Jonathan, and um, you know, so we found the cheap new studio that hadn't like we were one of the first bands going in there, and I think the Melvins came in right after us, or maybe they had gone right before us. I can't remember, um, but uh, you know, and then Tom gave us I think an extra three hundred dollars to mix or something. So we went in, recorded, tracked, recorded, did any we did overdubs and so all that and mixed in like two days. Right. Like, wow, that's kind of insane. When you <laughs> right. That's for such a bizarre and like just deep weird record. Like there's a lot of levels to it. There's a lot of, uh, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot going on. It's, it's not, it's not, you know, this isn't like a Ramones record. <laughs> no, right. No, it wasn't just all love like, to the Ramones, know, but it's a right. Like, okay, we're going to double that guitar. And then, you know, that kind of, I mean, we did do some of that, but it was way more. And Jonathan to his credit was also really like down with doing weird shit. Like he was like, yeah, let's just, let's just put that tape on here. Like, can we put, you know, the, the, the Marsha bang or Jan banging on the door. Can we put that? Or no, it wasn't Jan. Anyway, I forget who's trying to get out of the closet. Um, but, uh, you know, let's put it through a big delay or a reverb and, you know, that. So anyway, so there, that was like two days. And then Lurch was really similar because we were recording it more or less live. Mm -hmm. um, but we had more money and Tom was a little more like, OK, we I can tell you guys are going to do pretty well. So let's spend a little more on it. So we had maybe three or four days, but it was still it was probably most of the time was spent mixing. Mm -hmm. um, and then we went into Tulip and we had like you know, three months 
in this with this warehouse studio space to just fuck around right so um we would just go in there and we'd like track the drums and but but here's the thing is the instead of a big two inch 24 track machine there was like this half inch eight track machine (laughs) right and then a bunch of electronic gear right and so it was sort of like uh, the 90s version of taking a double cassette player and playing onto one side. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we were just constantly mixing shit down as we went. And so that's why it kind of ended up sounding a little flat and, and thin. Um, and why when it came time to remaster it, like we that's all we could do is because I don't think I have any of the original like if I have the original tracks, they are bounced down, right? It's like going back to the Beatles or something. Like, you know, that that's how they made those records, right? And so those early records, it was all just ping-ponging shit down to smaller, to fewer tracks until you have one left and then you go on to that one. Um, and so it was cool. It was, uh, it was definitely way more experimental and constructionist but we were still writing songs it's just okay here we need an intro you know um how are we going to do the intro it's like well i have this guitar part but you know maybe if i took the guitar part and played it played the guitar backwards and then recorded it and played that backwards and then played along with it that would make something cool you know Um, (laughs) right right just totally like crazy experimentation just yeah throwing things against the wall kind of deal and samples were kind of a bigger part, like they were, and you know, we were listening to Paul's Boutique probably at the time, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, and and a lot of um, that that era of rap hip hop was just so crazy great, um, in in the kind of in integration of samples and whatnot. So yeah, the Grand we, Theft Audio. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, and so it was super. It was really fun to put that together. I don't know. Like in retrospect, like I loved doing it. You know, I'm not sure that Darren at the time was super psyched on the process. I I can't, I don't remember, but it was fun because, you know, we were very social and so we could go down there and just hang out and play. Like, you know, it was great. I go, I remember one time doing a solo to something and that's all we did that day is went and hung out and we're like, well, we, what should go here? And I'd, you know, how about this? How about that? And, you know, and then do like six different takes and finally pick the last one. And then we like drank beer (laughs) and, you know, it was very, um, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed the process of it, which I think was also led to milk cult style, just hanging out in the studio and making shit, you know, which in, a lot of ways is sort of what has led me to where I am today. Where now. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. through lines for all of it. So with, with Tulip, there's, there's of course that reissue that came out uh, a couple of years ago that Which was is, uh, for, for Tulip uh, for under Sinister Torch, I think. That's right. Yeah. Did it. JJ. Yep. There, and there was a, a different artwork for it. It has the liner notes, everything. Uh, did, I mean, were you guys happy with that record when it came out? Do you feel like that was a good representation for the band? I mean, it certainly, you know, was my gateway into it for sure. The, you mean the original too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. It did. You know, it at the, in that era, like we were always top five college radio, blah blah blah, whatever. Um, but that one really, like, it really kind of lit. You know, 
lit a fire for us in terms of being able to play colleges and more, you know, we were just get, it just, it basically, you know, going from butterfly love, which there were, you know, like Gerard Cosley was super in, it was like us and pavement, which is the weirdest thing in retrospect. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it was like, these are the two bands, you yeah. know? And, and then we did lurch and admittedly it really, there were a lot of people who loved that direction we went, but it also made a lot of people go, what? Like, yeah, like what whoa, whoa, <laughs> this is not like you guys had some nice pop elements in that first thing. And yeah. where did, where did that go? Right. And so I think Tulip kind of brought it back to a, a little more colorful sort of vibe and, you know, not exactly light fair, I don't think, but, um, definitely interesting. And, 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 uh, and so I think it really, it seemed, you know, other than the, the, I think the recording quality, and that's why the remaster was such a good idea. That, yeah, Bob Weston uh, put his put his skills on it. It definitely sounds, if you AB it, sounds absolutely like night and day. Yeah, and it's a much, I mean, every now and again, you know, and to be fair, Noah Landis also had a hand in that a little bit, but he's worked with Bob a ton, and so yeah. they kind of work, work together a little bit. And but Bob's just a wizard, you know, um, and uh, and so. You know, every now and again, I was like, God, I just wish I had the original tracks like, oh, you know, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I I think there was definitely a little bit of a like, you know, we if we could have done that same process, but had it been on a like on a, you know, a digital audio workstation, then it would have been killer. Right. Um, I mean, in our view, I don't mean like in the grand view of things that Tulip is a, a masterwork or anything, but um I think we we would have been happier with the outcome if we'd been able to have both our cake and eat it too. You know? <laughs> sure, that's, which makes sense. So, so talk to me then about Miracle of Sound and Motion. That's like it's a couple of years later. Yeah, and so then we're still working with Conco, and he was like going on tour with us, doing live sound, mm -hmm. which is funny. He was, you know, he did that mostly to, I think, to both to get to really know our band because we were he was going to produce the next record and. Um, and he also wanted that experience of live production, but man, he hated touring. <laughs> he just really for him. sleeping on people's couches and sweating in the van. Just not his, his, his thing. Um, but you know, we're really tight friends and we did have some amazingly good times together doing that. But, and, and in the process, he became part of a, a bigger, better studio in the city called poolside. Um, and, and I, he and I worked at this place in Silicon Valley for a while on um, the uh, Euphonics console, which is a really high-end mixing console that uh, kind of came out or, or, you know, originated around that time. And so we got tapped into, you know, computers and uh, high-end studios and high-end mixing consoles. And, um, and so we kind of went into Poolside with the, the idea that we would – try and take the best aspects of do what we did with Tulip, um, but then try and get the power of live and good recording and, you know, just make a real, a quote unquote, big boy record, you know? Mm, sure. Um, and I feel like we kind of did, we were a much better band by then. And, um, you know, and, and so it kind of makes sense that it, well, it, it sounds, starts off with a bang. I mean, you got pseudo ephedrine's like, you know, out of the gate you're like oh they're 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 mean business you know just i'm just like how soul cannon was in the first record where it's like okay it starts off ripping okay cool right on uh and that's a moody record but it's it's there's definitely you know some of your more 
well-known songs come off of that record. And, you know, it certainly is something where it, it seems like a good foot forward as far as, you know, coming from the outside for sure. Oh, great. Well, thanks. I mean, I feel like, I mean, it's, it's so hard. It's been so long ago, but, um, you know, just as a band too, we were always, you know, crazy players, you know, we yeah. loved the, the, the live improv, um, and the way that we would, you know, the way that Darren played was so off that it, you really had no choice but to just like let yourself get in, go into it and just trust that we're all going to come back together. And we would, you know, it was this yeah. amazing. Very unique. Sort of, There's no other band you know? that quite, quite did that kind of thing as far as from my perspective. And it kind of took me a long time to sort of figure out certain aspects of it where it's like, Oh, okay. I understand why that's happening now. But at the time it's struck, wow, that's kind of went somewhere else for a while. And then it sort of came back <laughs> right, in, a, in a very free form, you know, like we were all very into, you know, John Coltrane, but yeah. in a very different way than say, you know, helmet was like helmet was into John Coltrane too, quote unquote. Right. But we were like into the free form thing. And, but I think by then we sort of started to realize like, okay, but we can also craft pieces too yeah. and that freeform thing has its place on a record that isn't necessarily um you know the madness of lurch or the quirky saturday morning cartoonness of tulip you know um something just a little bigger and stronger and per more purposeful um i mean i wish it's <laughs> i i wish i could say that's actually what we were thinking but like it's <laughs> i think it's it's way more just my my like kind of projecting backwards a little bit. Sure, you know? sure. Well, yeah, you're allowed. So, so tell me just about real quick the inclusion of the pose cover. Like, how did that how um, did that come to pass? Fuck, I don't. I honestly don't know. I, uh, I it was probably Darren's doing. Um, you know, we were uh, big fans, obviously, and we yeah. are also we partied a lot. We spent a lot of time in bars and clubs and s seeing bands. Oh my god. Um, and, uh, there was, you know, a local, uh, sort of Irish drinking band that played all the time that we're big fans of. And, and so I think at some point, I'm pretty sure it was Darren was like, let's cover this. You know, we were big. If you go look at our collection of covers, we did tons and tons of covers. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. You had the, uh, the Velvet Underground cover, you had the Black Sabbath cover, the Cheap Trick cover. I mean, all kinds of... Jimmy Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then there was the ones we only did live, which there were quite a few of Devo included. Um, and, uh, and so, and I think, you know, it was sort of like, ah, oh, we need a song. And, um, and then we also had a friend who sang and we were like, let's bring her in and, and get her to sing on it. And I think it was just one of those, again, non-precious moments where we were like, yeah, that, I think that'll fit. Like, you know, <laughs> I I don't I don't think we were you know I mean again I in some ways I wish we were clever enough to be like well we studied the Beatles and the way their records are laid out and then we studied <laughs> Led Zeppelin right 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 and it, we just were not that we were and even if like even if I had done that someone one of the three of us would have been like that's bullshit fuck you we're gonna do something else like you know right right it's, it's how it it's how it shook out sure it had to be way more like collaborative and like the the three of us agreeing that this particular thing is a good idea you know and um, and so I think that's probably how that happened. But honestly, you could ask Dale and he'll probably remember exactly how it really did happen. You know, 
you you mentioned covers real quick. There's two things I want to kind of bounce off of that. Uh, there's the um, I dream the I dreamed a dream cover oh, yeah. uh, that's uh, yeah. backed with the Melvins cover of a sweet young thing ain't sweet no more. Um, that's, that's what like it is, one right? of my yeah it is. Um, I dreamed I dream. Yeah, it's uh, yeah one of my favorite covers I think we've done to be totally honest. Um, well, and it's interesting because both it's like both bands weren't necessarily coming from like that different of a place, but they both have like very different. It's like a different type of pulls a different feeling out of the song. Right. Yeah. And it's a funny, I mean, it was, a. I, okay. So, um, the way I, and again, I could be misremembering Dale will be able to tell you the actual answer to this. Like, I mean the other Dale, like not my Dale, but you know, but Buzz's Dale. Yeah. Too many Dales. Um, (laughs) Too many Dales. Um, but, uh, we were playing in, you know, there's a, there was a pizza place in, uh, Champaign, Illinois, Fuck, I can't remember what it's called. But it was the weirdest thing. We would play there every tour and like 10 people would come. Mm-hmm. But every time those 10 people would be like uh, Tad and the Melvins and Nirvana are there or the Cows and, you know, Poster Children. And, you know, it was just every time we played, no one would be there except for all these amazing touring bands who happened to be <laughs> nearby. Right. 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 <laughs> And so I have all these great stories of, you know, oh, yeah, this one time when we were hanging out with so-and-so. Anyway, um, but so it was one of those shows. And I think it was we were on tour with maybe the Flaming Lips and Nirvana. And so that night we like Flaming Lips had a night off. So it was us and Nirvana. I think I think this is how this goes, but I could have it. uh, I could be off. Um, or it was maybe Nirvana and the Melvins were touring and then we happened to be there. It was one of the, one of those patterns, but we were touring with the, the, with Nirvana and, and, uh, Flaming Lips at the time. And, and so maybe anyway, so somehow Nirvana and the Melvins are there and we're at the van after the show, you know, how you're all standing around the van afterwards. And somehow that, the idea of that single came up. And that single was originally, you know, because it's it's that it's a it's a take on Mud Honey split with Sonic Youth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it was Buzz, of course, came up with it, or one of the Melvins. And and as I recall, it was originally supposed to be them and Nirvana, right? And oh, they were okay. just they were discussing it. And I kind of what I want to say, and God forbid I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure what it was is. Nirvana eventually were like, you know, we're we really like sub pop and we don't want to piss them off, basically. Or right, right. <laughs> like it, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would it be sense. uncool of us to do this, yeah. you know. Um and and so I think we were like, Well fuck, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, we, we got nothing to lose on that front. And so um it that's how it, the specifics could be wrong, but I'm 90% sure it was originally meant to be, the, you know, the Melvins and Nirvana. And it ended up then we kind of were the, the what, what's that called in, in plays? Like we were the study. The understudy. Like, <laughs> the understudy. That's it. Yeah. We like stepped in at the, the last minute. And so um, still, though, great. I love the artwork on the cover. Like it's just one of my favorites. Um, but weird story, too, about that one. Uh weird industry thing is for some reason that was right around when, you know, Nirvana was probably hitting and we, 
were touring Europe a lot. And so our record label in London was like, okay, the single's coming out. It's going to be huge. We want to um, <laughs> – it was this thing that they wanted to do this thing where they, they print 2,000 and then they sell them to stores and then they go in and buy them. To drive them up the charts, right? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It's like what they do with like right-wing books to get them on the yeah. bestsellers. <laughs> I, I, I'm 100% serious, right? And of course, at the time, you know, we were like, well, A, that's super unethical and lame and we're not sellouts, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, like the sellout thing is kind of a joke now. But um, And B, it was like, but have you heard the song? Like, <laughs> Right, exactly. It's not, it's not exactly the song you would think would be rocketing up the charts. <laughs> Like you can put that to the top of the charts and still not sell any, you yeah, know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I just always thought that was so funny and so indicative of sort of the the blindness of of the the big industry, you know. Um, well, and and I'd, I'd love to talk to you more, Mike. I just looked at the time though, and I, I realized I, we got we got to kind of wrap this up. I can't believe. Oh shit, I, we're I, going on like two hours. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. We didn't even get to enlistable. We didn't get the scars from falling down, but. Uh, you know, I, re- I really appreciate all that. You just got to come back. That's that's the yeah, c- next come time. Back, come back another time. So last thing, it's the only canned question I ever do. I always ask folks is a pretty easy one if you choose it to be. And it's a, why do you do what you do? Mm, I'd say two things, really. The people. Um, like it, There's two universes that I feel really at home in. And underground art is one of them, like, uh, you know, underground touring bands, particularly from that era, are some of my best friends and some of the most comfortable I've ever been in my skin, you know, that um, I don't necessarily consider. I'm very social on the on the surface, but, uh, you know, that world has always made me feel at home. Um, and and then. uh the 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 kind of the work like i like the work you know um and i like to work in fact i just shipped a game like two weeks ago and i was working 100 hour weeks for three week three months and i just love i love it and so but the th- nice thing is on the on the on the flip side when you're not doing that part of the work your work is listening to records and reading comic books and and all the shit that I love to do anyway. So, you know, it's just good all the way around. And honestly, like, I think it's kind of the most noble thing humans do other than maybe the thing that most people think of as noble, which is fixing the shit that humans fuck up for each other, (laughs) Uh, you know, and which is, is ostensibly more noble, but you got to look at the source of where that nobility comes from. Um, whereas I think making stuff and, and trying to bring, you know, create more and make more, I don't know, beauty in the world that doesn't already exist is, is a good pursuit. Yeah, man. Well, I, I appreciate all the beauty that you brought into the world and, uh, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with me today. Thanks for doing this, Conan. I appreciate being able to listen to the show and definitely being on it. It's an honor. And uh, until next time, how about that? Right on. I'll be happy. You know, I can just talk forever. So, Well, me too. So it's a dangerous combination. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Take care. Stay safe.
All right, thanks. You too. Uh, there we go. Mike Moraski. <laughs> Yeah, man. It's a... Yeah. Is this thing on? Can you hear me now?
Welcome to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! It's the, it's the end of radio. The last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? Broadcasting if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day. See?